this is an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. I'm your host, Holly. Joining me as a co-host today is Maya. Hello. This is a non-profit, self-organized amateur podcast exploring the history of madness and the way that history continues to influence our lived realities. This podcast is recorded on stolen land. Our aim is to foster awareness and solidarity through the existence of a shared past. This episode contains mentions of mental illness, asylums, institutionalization, racism, anti-blackness, colonialism, misogyny, mass violence, and ableism. It's a doozy. Bit of a doozy today. Um, Because in today's episode, we are going to learn about the Age of Revolution and the rapid social changes in the 18th century, the rise of asylums and asylum reformists, and the racialization of madness. But first off, what was the Age of Revolutions? Age of Revolutions was a subset of the early modern era going roughly from 1700 to 1850. And it's technically part of the early modern period, but honestly we just had to break this up some way. Because there's a lot going on in this period of time. I'm not sure if we coined this historical era, but we at least pushed the boundaries in order to make this a discrete period of time. Yes, um, other other authors have talked about it, so it's not totally us making things up. Um, <laughs> we try not to make things up on this podcast. We really do. So, for example, some of the revolutions that you might have already heard of, um, the United States had its revolution during this time period. France had their revolution during this time period. And Haiti had their revolution uh, during this time period. And so these are kind of like the three big examples of revolutions that were going on. Um, and they were all revolutions against monarchies and or colonial government structures. But we're also kind of referring more to metaphorically to revolutions um, in science and the approach to the treatment of the mentally ill. And to kind of go back a little bit to our last episode, we talked about the Enlightenment and the ideas that accompanied the Enlightenment. And those ideas then helped fuel the rationale behind some of these political revolutions. Yeah, that's a really important connection to make. So what's the state of things in terms of mental health care at this time? Earlier than the 1800s, but through the 1800s, there were not many people in institutions. In England, just for an example, because we've got good numbers on what was happening in England at the time, about 5,000 to 10,000 individuals were in institutions, and England at the time had a population of about 10 million. So that's just a fraction of a fraction of a percent. Do you think that's what people think of when they think of mental health care during this time period? No, I get the impression, and I had the impression, that institutions were always full to the brim. Interesting. And I was really surprised to find in my reading that that was not the case and that there were actually times where institutions were relatively empty. I don't want to make a false comparison here, but it reminds me a little bit of learning that I've done around imprisonment, that we have this idea that prisons always had huge populations because we live in such a carceral society. But in fact, there are periods of time when a very small number of people were imprisoned. And that's similar with asylums where there's a period in time where there truly are tens of thousands of people housed in asylums but not this period that we're talking about from 1700 to 1850 yeah i think that that's especially considering the fact that the carceral state the the use of imprisonment is going to become a replacement for mental health care in the modern era 
spoiler alert in case you didn't already know i think that that's a very apt comparison to make so but going back to the 1700s through 1800s to get someone institutionalized there wasn't a super official process which makes sense because we're not um, institutionalizing a lot of people more often it was a tangled negotiation between family members community members magistrates officials and asylum keepers and to get someone out of an asylum could be just as complicated and asylums were for another surprise not all bad but nor were they all good a variety of experiences awaited the institutionalized especially since asylums were for profit some patients after being released reported that their condition had greatly improved others reported being even more traumatized and kind of quackery abounded during this time and quackery being people who really had no business being in healthcare, who really had no system of improving people's conditions practicing as if or posing as if they could do so yeah exactly that's generally what that term means Psychiatry came as a response to needing to manage patients, but not from outside inquiry. Conventional wisdom was that the mad were like wild animals needing to be tamed by force, which makes sense in the eyes of the Enlightenment, where rationale is king, and if you're not rational, you're not human. And it's important to keep an eye on these dehumanizing narratives, because they tend to justify really awful treatment. To that point, psychiatrists relied on bloodletting, forced vomiting, restraints, and other inhumane treatments. One asylum, though, The Retreat, modeled its treatment of patients after the excess of bourgeoisie lifestyle. They abandoned rationalism, they abandoned moralism for just being kind to their patients, which uh, apparently had excellent results. <laughs> I think or that's, relatively excellent results. It's a really important example to think about. And this retreat kind of kicked off later reformist movements, the kind of success that they had in simply treating people kindly. So for exact opposite examples, some asylums like in Bethlehem in London, the one that later will be called Bedlam, and Pennsylvania Hospital in particular charged for admittance from the general public and treated their institution like a human zoo. Which I think is another really awful example of that kind of othering, right? That it's like a tourist spectacle, essentially, and you could pay admission and go in and kind of look at people who were mad. Sometimes the severely mentally ill would be sold at auction to the lowest bidder, often used as free labor, then released from service after a week to a year. Asylums during this time are known for their brutal treatment, by and large, with some exception. The general public did not have great confidence in the asylum's ability to cure people. It was more of a storage facility for the mad. So naturally, there was pushback in the 1750s over this brutal treatment. They wanted to get rid of or reduce the use of confinement and these other just brutal treatments so contemporaries looking at how poorly people were treated across the board kind of were horrified by this and kind of started to raise questions and advocate for a different method yeah they wanted to do something about it especially when things like the retreat actually seem to be working better and maybe even curing people 
secure and big air yes. quotes at least to their perception yeah to their perception much, is what i meant yeah yeah so this was led by a man named philippe pinel and he was the pioneer of the moralist movement um he lived 1745 to 1826 Pinnell would work to change all of this horrible stuff, um, allegedly casting off the chains of patients at the asylum where he worked, coinciding with the French Revolution. He believed that if a problem was mental, the solution had to be mental. He believed that madness um, was caused by a rational breakdown in the mind, um, so the rational mind needed to repair in order to recover. He's known as one of the founding fathers of psychiatry, and he and his contemporaries thought of themselves in terms of revolutionaries. There's a revolution going on outside of the asylum. Why shouldn't there be a revolution inside the asylum? He also believed that the better descriptions you had for disorders, the better the diagnosis, the better the treatment. And that logic was still struggling to take hold centuries later. Yeah, we don't have much critical documentation and synthesis and cross-referencing of information about diagnoses during this time period. And he was one of the first people to say, this is something we should be investing in. Outside of France, Germany also made a serious attempt at making a modern medical system for the mad, but this effort kind of fizzled out for various reasons. Germany also began to develop serious scientific inquiries and schools dedicated to the understanding of madness. Movements in Germany and France led to an optimism regarding the, the efficacy of the asylum. This resulted in decades of reforming and expanding the asylum system. Psychiatry came from the asylums, not the other way around. Um, the asylum system expanded faster than psychiatry could develop, leading to mass incarcerations and inadequate care systems in place to support them. Optimism turned to despair. Patient numbers in England would jump from 10,000 to 100,000 by 1900, so that's a little bit outside of our time period, but I think it's still worth mentioning. The trajectory that this is going to take. All around Europe, these numbers also jumped up considerably. The asylum system extended to the United States by 1752 as, as it did to Australia, New Zealand, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Argentina. In most other colonized places during this time, the asylum system did not take hold, but rather local customs remained in place. So I want to go back a second because we went very quickly from a optimistic high note to a devastating mass warehousing of the mentally ill. And I want to walk through that trajectory a little bit again because this is something that feels really important and somewhat dizzying. So we have reformers like Philippe Pinel who had authority within their systems to make reforms and changes that emphasized a more humane treatment. And then there was this wave of moral reform um, that advocated and sounded a note of optimism with regard to what could be accomplished in an asylum setting. Um, and it was a reaction to things that were really awful, right? You're absolutely right. They're, they were responding to things that were immensely problematic and they wanted real reform. And the problem was, is that everyone got so optimistic 
that these reforms might just work, that these might just fix the problem, that they wound up overcorrecting and they went all in on a solution that wasn't actually much of a solution that, like you said, was just warehousing the mad all over again, except now it's even more people. So they reinvested in the infrastructure that was housing all of the abuses that they were objecting to and expanded the number of places where people could be held in this way. And this is something that I'm still really sitting with where a really clear example where optimism and reform that's rooted in a recognition of abuse is then the catalyst for a wave of essentially mass confinement. Yeah, and it's, it's to me, it's almost like a, like a wave breaking. Mm. Like the momentum at the top of the movement was too much and the whole thing collapses on itself. And at the end of the day, society relied on the solution that it already was relying on, which is, was the asylums. And they sort of perversely created an environment where more people might be subject to the kind of treatment that can happen in an enclosed environment. So this is where we start to see the numbers of people who are in the asylums really start to rise. Yeah, because they thought that they had finally figured out how to make asylums cure people. But the problem is, is that asylums by themselves don't cure people. They could be places of healing, but they didn't actually go and through and finish their homework as to how to make sure that that was what was happening. And instead, they just created more places to put people. And as, as we see today, the tools in the toolkit were by definition limited. So some people were going to continue to struggle in an asylum setting, no matter what the premises were. Yeah, there aren't really a whole lot of alternatives unless you're very rich. So that's the current state of things. That's the revolution happening in the asylums. That is the asylum system exploding all over Europe and exploding all over the world as this expands into colonial area areas. And this brings us to a period of history that might be a little bit more recognizable to some of us, right? So this is where we're seeing, you know, asylums that are housing thousands upon thousands of people, a much broader network of asylums. We're starting to see the asylum system reach what is now the United States. Yeah, this is all going to start looking a lot more familiar. This is U.S. history onward. And from this point, we're going to be focusing a lot more on the United States because what the United States does winds up affecting the rest of the world. Because of the patterns of this history and because of the role of the U.S. as a colonial power. Yeah, absolutely. So to that end, the irony of the Age of Revolution is that it was full of slavery and genocide that did not end after these revolutions took place, with the exception of Haiti. Haiti is a really important example to include, especially from those of us who are taught really Eurocentric history. So where there was this focus on the American Revolution and the French Revolution, um, Haiti's own homegrown revolution that was sparked by people who had formerly been enslaved um, had a very different motive, character, and ultimate result than the revolutions elsewhere, I think is Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Yeah. So now we pivot our perspective from Europe to Africa and the Americas to see how madness was constructed during slavery and how it was racialized. Even though this series has largely been focused on the quote-unquote West, as globalization begins to take hold, we do have to expand our horizons. 
And so we're going to begin with West Africa. So briefly, a criminally short overview of the history of West Africa. This is an area that's been occupied for basically as long as there have been people, um, with many cultures and human activities dating well before any European settlements. Western Sub-Saharan Africa is well known for its mighty civilizations such as the Mali and the Songhai. Uh, these people operated complex trans-Saharan trade routes that reached all over Eurasia. European colonization of this area was a multi-generational affair as these communities were resilient in the face of European efforts. The transatlantic slave trade would begin in the 1500s following the expeditions by Christopher Columbus. It was known euphemistically as the Triangle Trade. Though slavery has been practiced by humans since antiquity, the chattel slavery system of Africans by Europeans remains to be among the most brutal and widespread forms of slavery invented. It's estimated that as many as 12 million Africans were stolen from their homelands. This displacement of human beings paired with ongoing colonization has severely damaged West Africa ever since. Some scholars believe that disabled people, debtors, and criminals made up as much as half of the slave population sold to the Europeans. So there may be an additional intersection with disability history in this history of enslavement. And unfortunately, we don't have as good of records and numbers as we would maybe want to explore this further. But some scholars do believe that disabled people were among the first to kind of get snatched up and sold off. And one of the crimes of enslavement in this enslavement system, as, as it was practiced in the U.S., is a history of erasure. And so the loss of names, the loss of family genealogies and geographic connections and the identities of the generations of people who um, experienced enslavement were deliberately occluded and have been lost in many ways. So it's, it's difficult by design to uncover what we would like to know about the people who were subject to this system. Doctors and slave owners believe that black people not only had diseases unique to them, but were also less sensitive to things like pain and exhaustion. At least this is what they were telling themselves, right? Behavior in search of a framework and all of that, like you like to say. And I think that it might be helpful to tag back a little bit because we talked about kind of perceptions of mental illness and the solidification of perceptions of madness being related to processes of colonization and processes of mm -hmm. um, the solidification of gender roles. And so we're, as we're talking about enslavement, we're also talking about how these logics were mobilized to enforce white supremacy and to enforce these, not only colonialism, but also this practice of enslavement. Yeah, I think that that's a really good framework to put in over all this. Furthermore, when an enslaved person was brought to a doctor for any number of reasons, the master is the one that was considered to be the patient, not the slave. The goal was to get the slave operating at whatever degree the master needed, like a machine. Racism and capitalism are the driving forces here. It was thought that the treatments for white people would kill a black person, as such, medical books were kept separately for black people and for white people. 
Enslaved people would hide their ailments, their neurotypes, etc., from their masters to avoid ill treatment or, um, or examination from doctors. This distrust of doctors and embedded racism within the medical system continues to the present day. We have records of herbal remedies being used by the enslaved population as a way to self-treat and avoid going to white doctors. There were black healers, but they were often under the supervision of white physicians. Sometimes enslaved peoples would feign illness, stupidity, even epilepsy. And if enough people did this at the same time, it could actually result in a slowdown or a coordinated effort to reduce the profits of the master. And this was considered to be a particularly dangerous tactic. So we're talking a little bit about kind of the medical system as it was being enacted in the present day U.S. in areas where enslavement was in practice. Is that right? Yes. I'm really, I'm still curious about this idea of um, feigned illness as a practice of, as a practice of resistance, which is, I think, an important piece of reclaimed history that people have brought to light and learned more about. Um, It's really difficult to know who might have been kind of enacting a a neurotype-based difference or mental illness in order to kind of enact a form of resistance. But I think there is some evidence that it, it was essentially bounced the racism of the system back against the system itself. So because pe- the assumption and this violent assumption of white supremacy held that people were, people were ill or people were not capable in some way, it was a kind of enacting of that lack of capability falsely in ways that would kind of damage the system itself. Yeah, and when you don't have many other options available to you and you have nowhere to run and you don't maybe even speak the language, you don't have many other options. And in other areas where we've seen, you know, we, we've seen work slowdowns used in other contexts as well. And this is just one that particularly intersects with our history of madness and medicine as people are feigning illness, as people are feigning mental illness, as people are feigning stupidity that definitely intersects with what we're talking about for a variety of reasons it's really difficult to reconstruct the the experiences of madness that people were having because it's they themselves were abused in this medical system and we don't have trustworthy reports essentially yeah that that's a really important point to bring up because the records that we do have are from the white doctors and the white slave owners And we're inferring a lot of information from those reports and from those records. Right. So we're kind of looking through this extremely racist framework to try to get to the people who we're trying to learn more and know more about. Yeah, because we don't have their accounting of themselves. We don't have access to that. That's been lost to us by design. You know, these are these are people who were forbidden to learn to read and write for a reason. What are some of the ways that this racist medical system was kind of deploying ideas of madness or mental illness um, against people who were enslaved? Well, basically, doctors and slave owners constructed madness 
um, around what they wanted their ideal slave to act like. So they were assuming an idea of core normalcy that very conveniently aligned with what they were hoping for for their own profit motive. Exactly. And so if a slave tried to run away, if a slave was disobedient, or I should say an enslaved person, if an enslaved person tried to run away, if an enslaved person um, failed to do their work, if an enslaved person misbehaved in any way, they would call you crazy, essentially. And this was enacted by the 1850s, so just on the outside of our time period that we're looking here. They had special diagnoses just for enslaved peoples. These included, but were not limited to, drapedomania, mental illness that caused enslaved people to flee their masters, hebetude, a condition of lethargy and laziness, dysthesia athiopica, a mental condition that gives enslaved people the desire to destroy property, and atrophobia, the fear of medical care. And again, these are all made-up conditions. These aren't real. And these were being diagnosed by doctors. And these were being diagnosed by doctors towards enslaved people to pathologize their behaviors that didn't that the, the master didn't like. Another way to think about this is that these all refer to very recognizable human instincts to um, retain autonomy in the face of the kinds of really hideous control that people were experiencing. So something like the desire to exit the condition of slavery is itself being pathologized as an illness. It was also thought that insanity would befall, quote, primitive people um, who were granted freedom. So even in the idea that you, it was insanity to run away from your master, but also you would become insane if you had freedom for too long. Um, it was believed that black people had mental and physical limitations that meant that they would suffer without white people's oversight and protection. And this is a place where I think belief and convenient rationalization really coincide. And there is a really built up pattern of thinking um, to justify what was an economic system that was enriching the few yeah, absolutely. Because there were a very few people who were benefiting from this system, and they had the power to write the narrative. And they and were benefiting quite a bit. They benefited quite a bit. So the idea that it was somehow more moral to hold people in slavery was benefiting the few. And also, we've talked about this before, because madness is difficult to pin down, is difficult to identify the causes of, is can be nebulous around the margins, holding it out as a vague social threat can have some fear-based effectiveness. You're going to have a mass outbreak of madness among people who can't care for themselves were we truly to be forced to free these human beings. So moving right along, um, there was an individual named Samuel Cartwright um, who was a doctor at the time um, who went so far as to say that since black people had, quote, 10% smaller craniums than white people, that the, quote, the cranium closes on the brain like a prison. It is no longer a divine temple, but a sort of helmet for resisting heavy blows, end quote. Which, that's pretty 
fucking racist. And it's scientifically racist. I think this is part of this current of scientific racism that's both influencing the construction of madness, um, but also is really a um, reflection on the way that science was used in an increasingly racist and colonialist set of European and ultimately European-influenced societies. So this idea of it being 10% smaller, that's not a coincidence. This is supposed data that's being collected to definitively prove um, that white people are somehow superior. I'm glad that you have insightful things to say after that because mostly whenever I look at that quote and whenever I think about it and whenever I have to say it um, I just feel physically ill and so I don't have any I think that's a good reaction I mean it <laughs> I don't should... have anything to contribute right now <laughs> it should make us ill um, oh, God, which the... you know I'm not trying to wring my hands over here it's just there's it's important to reckon and wrangle with how the systems that held power, not just governments, but systems like the medical system, leverage their position in allyship with people who are making profits from an extremely, there's no words for how harmful enslavement was and continues to be for our communities. Yeah, yeah. And every part of that quote is bad. But I especially just to, to play off of what you're saying, like it's the scientific racism saying that well of course that they're like this and that this is how the brain is functioning under this new regime that we've identified and that really what their skull is good for is being resistant to pain which is what we already think that they are resistant to and so that justifies physical abuse towards these people it's bad data being followed by racist interpretation being followed by a justification for violence yeah so it's just a shit sandwich it's pretty wretched but in case 10 percent smaller cranium um seemed a little oddly specific to anybody and we we've kind of dialed in on that but is actually consistent with the study of phrenology phrenology is the idea that you can use skull size and shape to predict someone's mental capacity and other traits this is becoming hugely popular as slave traders needed pseudoscientific proof that, that, that what they were doing was justifiable. Um, we'll do a whole episode on phrenology sometime. It was like all the rage at this point in time, and it didn't really totally vanish. Like there are still some practitioners to this day, but that's part of what's happening here. And I think it's something that phrenology was really seized on um, as part of this, um, like you were saying, this effort to scientifically justify um, enslavement and racist treatment. So here's, I think, a really, really important takeaway from this whole thing, because this has been a pretty rough later half of this episode. I mean, the early half has some rough stuff as well <laughs> yeah like this this has just been a rough episode um but i think what's really really important to hammer home and if i would say if you take one thing away from this episode it would be this between the modern medical reforms 
the rationalist approach to mental illness and the belief that some people are simply more savage or primitive or prone to in, to being enslaved than other people it's clear that race and madness are being constructed together not just alongside one another but they're being constructed together and to remember that as we move forward because this isn't a one-off thing and as we continue to look at the racialization of madness this theme is going to keep coming up can you talk a little bit more about this rationalist approach to mental illness that's being kind of deployed at this time yeah i think the easiest thing to point out is the phrenologists again Mm -hmm. because that's very rational it's scientific it's it's all of these things or at least that's what they think that they're doing they think they're being scientific they think that they're being rational they think that they're looking at things through a purely scientific lens but that's really not the case it's pseudoscience it's something that has the veneer of a scientific approach but doesn't have the the rigor or the 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 basis that we would expect from science so it's this kind of chain of logic in a way that um, there's this phenomenon of madness. Um, people are starting to take different kinds of interest during the same period in um, anatomy and the brain. And so those threads start to coincide and there's this common sense approach or extension from that, if you will. Well, madness exists. We're learning more about the brain what can the skull that houses the brain tell us about how prone someone is to mental instability in other words and so there's this chain of seemingly rational logic that's really just untethered from any kind of evidence basis yeah exactly and that pseudoscience um again coming back to that word because that's essentially what you're describing is something that has scientific attributes but isn't quite science the pseudoscience is being paired with looking for an excuse to brutalize black bodies. So that's kind of, that's what you mean when you're saying these things are being constructed and built together, that there's something inherent about some people that makes them mad. And who are those some people that we're looking to um, dehumanize in this current power structure? Mm Mm-hmm. And so those currents start to run together. Absolutely. And if you look at other racial groups, especially through the phrenology lens, you see that this is occurring in other places as well. Behavior in search of a framework. Behavior in search of a framework. After all of this, what are you still processing? I don't know if I'm ever going to stop processing how the moral reform sparked the explosion in the asylum system. And I think that it's really important kind of looking ahead as we think about our contemporary movements to think about um, what changes we're really asking for in our systems and how we apply our critiques so that we're not unleashing unintended consequences that lead to the mistreatment of larger and larger numbers of people. I think I'm still processing the racist aspect of the medicine that we've just looked at. 
um, and how much of a misuse of that system it is. Medicine is supposed to help people. Medicine is supposed to heal and to do good. And for somebody to take that and twist it into this thing that's designed to hurt people. Yeah, I think the the deepest reckoning that's our responsibility to do is around the ways that around the dynamics of enslavement in the US. Like that's a it's a core obligation. Mm-hmm. The implications of it are so far reaching. I think that's part of what we're talking our way around. We're in a in this podcast we're really in a a small corner of history in some way. You know, we're following a single strand. Um, and you can still see the devastation around enslavement in our small corner. And that's, it's just one brick in this giant edifice. Mm -hmm. What was your takeaway? I think I still have a lot of questions, but I, I really want to take to heart this idea that what we need to be taking away is how madness and racism these how these concepts especially as they relate to our contemporary society were constructed together and trying to continue to hold that and to interrogate that i think is the takeaway here especially as we move forward and focus more on the u.s i think my takeaway uh goes back to the reformists and pinnell and i've felt like this for a while um and i think this example and just seeing the disconnect between the state of the science and the state of society has just driven this point home for me, which is that science and society do seem to run on separate tracks. And that you can come up with the answer to life, the universe, and everything, but if people aren't ready to get on board with that idea, it's not going to take. And as somebody like who has studied science and who has beaten my head up against the wall trying to figure out why people don't do what to me seems like the obvious thing and how your words can get kind of like misconstrued and misused by people who just have a different sort of agenda. It's been very confusing to me. And But watching Pinnell's struggle of trying to bring more humane treatment to the mad only to wind up making it worse... <laughs> inadvertently in a, in, in unintentionally a, <laughs> and in the long view <laughs> uh, yeah just having these these ripple effects i think it's reinforced for me this idea that like society being primed for change is not the same thing as science discovering change and that those are two very different things and that they have to be made to to meet over some conduit of some kind and that's what i'm taking away and that's i guess also what i'm still processing right like the a person can land on a best practice with regard to the treatment of people experiencing mental illness um that involves more liberatory more humane practices and that doesn't mean that even when society seizes on those ideas that they're able to consistently apply them to the next wave of institutions that are constructed. The optimism is transmuted into essentially recreating and expanding the same system that has the same potentials for abuse without keeping the core idea of that best practice that 
caused the optimism in the first place. Yeah, 100%. I think that that's a great way to sum that up. Um, so do you have any book recommendations for the book club? I do. For a book recommendation, I have Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. Um, it gets more into some of these, the racialization of um, madness as well as uh, the medical aspect. Um, we have done our best here to represent this information um, well, um, but ultimately we're two white people doing this. And so I think it is really, really important that after this, um, hearing about these issues um, from somebody else, I think is a good and healthy thing. Yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of really important work done on racist and differential treatment in the medical system by black authors. And I think going straight to them is the best work that's being done. Yeah. All right. This has been one hell of an episode by the Bedlam Book Club. I'm Holly. I'm Maya. And we will see you next time. This has been an episode of the Bedlam Book Club. This show was produced, written, and created by Maya and Holly. Intro and outro music was by Coma Studio. Check out our bibliography in the show notes. Make sure to practice self-care and contact local resources if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health emergency. Take care of each other out there. <laughs>